Let's read from 1 Thessalonians 1, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in the word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Asia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Asia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. <clears throat> you can be seated. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That verse from Philippians 2.13. And it seems to me that the Apostle Paul might have had the same thing in mind as he talked about God in Philippians 2 and the passage that Joseph just read in 1 Thessalonians 1 how that it's God that works in us. It's, it's the Lord that we are looking to. It's God that we honor. Not I, but Christ could be the theme of the life of the Apostle Paul, and, and he enjoins us to do the same, not I, but Christ. So as we look at 1 Thessalonians today, the 1 Thessalonians, where you already have your Bibles open, um, my prayer is that, my hope is that we can worship him together. Did you notice how God-centered this chapter is, as Joseph read it. I noticed 17 times that God is mentioned, or the Father, or Christ Jesus, or the Holy Ghost. 17 times. Paul is like a laser pointing to Christ Jesus, to God. And I liked what Glenn said at the beginning of his devotional. He said, we're here to bless and praise the Lord. And close to the end of the devotional, he said something about, we want to lift up the name of Jesus, and certainly we wish to do that as we worship him together here today. Not I, but Christ. I struggled in knowing what the title 
should be for this sermon. Uh, at first, really, all I could think of was something real fancy like First Thessalonians 1. And then, as I kept preparing and studying, it seemed like maybe not I, but Christ would really be an appropriate title. So that's what I chose, not I, but Christ. Certainly, that is one of the themes in this chapter. And I think that we will just be looking at the first four verses here today. First Thessalonians, this book, was probably the very first epistle that Paul wrote to the churches, to any of the churches. He had been in, first, he had been in the city of Thessalonica about a year before he wrote First Thessalonians. And you can read about that in Acts 17. In fact, if you'd want to turn there for just a few minutes as we think about the beginning, the origin of the church at Thessalonica, you could be scanning there and noticing uh, what happened and how all that happened uh, as, we, as we talk about that just now. Acts 17, the first nine verses. Verse 2, you'll notice that Paul was there for about three weeks. Notice there it says that he was in the synagogue uh, three Sabbath days. And it seemed like there was a great open door. Do you see in verse 4 that it says that some, and I noticed that word some, of the Jews believed, but a great number of... Of some men believed and of women not a few I believe it says a great multitude and of chief women not a few it seemed like it was wide open people were receptive were open to the gospel this was new to them they had probably never heard of any missionaries before and God was doing a wonderful work and the Holy Spirit was alive, was alive and well in the city of Thessalonica then suddenly the door shut. The door closed. That open door closed. And it didn't just close, but it was a very sudden close and a very swift close and a very solid one, too. Uh, it seemed as if the door just slammed shut and it was locked and bolted and barred just like that, all of a sudden. So after three weeks, Paul had no choice but to leave the city. And I think it's, is it in verse 9 that it talks about security? Uh, he had gotten, the authorities had gotten some security from Jason. Verse 9. And we think that that term, that word security, means that the authorities said, because the Jews didn't like Paul and his message and stirred up the people, the authorities needed to respond. And they said, all right then, we won't do anything bad to you, Paul. We won't um, put you in jail. We won't uh, persecute you if you leave security. And they didn't only say that, but part of that security we understand from things that Paul wrote later is that you may never come back. And Jason agreed to that. Jason said, all right. So we think that the security was, the security that's mentioned in verse 9 is that We'll let you go, but you may, you need to go, uh, 
and you may never come back. You're banished from our city, and should you ever return, it'll be nothing but sure death, swift death for you. So the door shut very, very, very quickly. But that door didn't, wasn't slammed shut without two others that we're thinking of, that I'm thinking of, that kind of cracked open, or maybe even more than cracked, but was open rather wide. And the, one of those doors was the city of Berea, just down the pike a little bit further. So Paul, being the kind of man that he was, <coughs> didn't retreat and go limp back home, but he went further down the road and preached Christ there. Not I, but Christ. That was Paul's theme. So there was an open door at Thessalonica for a little while, but another door that swung open just then was the possibility of Paul writing back to this new young, fledgling church at Thessalonica. And I am just wondering if Paul had ever even thought about writing before. He was an active man. Uh, he, I think he enjoyed going from city to city. That was the kind of work uh, that he thrived in. But now he can't go back to Thessalonica. No way. He may never go back there again, and he's thinking about all those young, young Christians. And God says, why wouldn't you write a letter? Which he did. So the door shut real solidly. It was slammed shut, but there were other doors that opened. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking about a door that has, in your life, that has just been shut. A, a possibility that had great possibilities. Um, but all of a sudden, no chance of that anymore. The door is shut. Well, we've often heard it said that, and I think that Paul's experience in Thessalonica bears that out, that God, when he shuts a door, will open others. And if the door, if a door has shut in your life, that doesn't mean that God is displeased with you. That doesn't mean that God has no work for you. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to do. But God, in his faithfulness, will open other doors, doors that you can walk through and serve the Lord with great joy and gladness. So if that door wouldn't have shut, maybe Paul would have stayed at Thessalonica for a while, maybe a year and six months or like he did at Corinth later, or a two years like he did in Ephesus later, and maybe this book would never have been written. So we benefit from that closed door, from what Paul thought was a dead end, what Paul might have thought was a dead end and a closed door. Here we sit today. Here we are, in 2,000 years later, benefiting yet, God's children still benefiting from the writings of the Apostle Paul. And think with me just a little bit about what it would be like to not have grown up within the with the gospel, not having known about God and his salvation, 
But then as an, as an adult, let's say, or as a youth, or the, at the age that you are, perhaps you're, what would have it been like if at whatever age, at the age that you are, if you would have first heard about Jesus and his salvation, and somebody would have told you, a missionary would have come among us and left us know about all this and would have been here for three weeks, and you would have responded, I would have responded, we would have all responded, but after three weeks, that person who told us everything we know about spiritual things leaves never to return again. What kind of shape would we have been in? What kind of response or what would have we thought? Think of that, especially in light of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 where he commends this young church. A year later, he commends them and says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Isn't that wonderful? God's grace that provided for them in situations far less than ideal, far less than normal, far less than usual, God's grace that provided for them back then will surely provide for you and for us similarly today. So if you're sitting here and you realize that your lot in life is less than normal, it's less than ideal, it, um, you have all kinds of struggles and trials and problems in life right now, well, God is faithful. And the God who saw those young Thessalonican Christians through will do the same for you. All right, let, let's look at just a little bit more at the text um, in the first four verses. And I chose to just, in each of these four verses, just pick out one phrase or one thought or one theme in each of the four verses. In doing that, um, maybe you'll notice that there's kind of a progression. The first two are th that things that we'll be looking at have to do with Christ, God, and then the second two, more about our response to the first two. So maybe you can keep that in your mind as we go along here. I'd like to start not in verse 1, but... In verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The election of God. Number one, the election of God. Why would we start there? Well, I think that the election or God electing us comes first in our Christian life and experience. And what does it mean that God has elected us? Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Well, we could explain it this way, couldn't we, that God elects those to salvation. Or he, we could say he selects, couldn't we? Or he chooses. In verse 1, the word church is mentioned. The church of the Thessalonians. And church, that word in the Greek is ekklesia. And that means called out ones. So when God elects, when he selects, when he chooses, he calls those out those in the church of Christ 
hopefully everyone here today are called out ones. God has called us out of the world and into him and his program and his life. Called out ones. The election. So, election, selection, choosing, called out. Uh, there's another word that Jesus, along with that, there's another word that Jesus mentioned a couple times uh, that God, that Jesus used a few times and the first one is in John 6.44. I think it's in John 6.44 that Jesus says that no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Except the Father draw him. And then he kind of explains that, what he meant in John 12, 32, where, where Jesus said, I am come that I, that I might draw who? who? All men unto myself. Thank you, Eli. All men to myself. So God actually selects you, for sure. And everyone, that election is not partial, but it's total. Everyone that has the breath of life, God is selecting them. And God is calling them, calling you. And God is drawing you has drawn and will continue to draw us even after we are his children. And to me it's so interesting that that word draw mentioned in John 6:44 and again in John 12:32 draw has the original word has the thought at least a little bit of of dragging. And Jesus does that. God does that. He is dragging us toward himself. I like that word picture. Jesus is serious about it. God is serious and is wooing and drawing and even dragging us toward himself. Surely our response is that we allow him to drag us ever nearer, ever closer to him. I could tell you uh, the story about how that I came to the Lord but if I do that that doesn't mean that because it happened this way for me that it can't have been different for you and my story is surely different than yours and I don't mean that if you can't really tell of a time or date when you came to the Lord when you were born again but it was a more gradual thing where the Lord um, called you and dra drug you in a more uh, longer period of time I'm not meaning to indicate at all that that's second rate certainly not a second rate story or a second rate conversion or that y your conversion is less than others who can remember exactly when it happened. So in 1970, I think it was September or October of 1970, I was 13 years old and the Lord had been calling me and I hadn't been responding at all. But one Sunday evening, uh, my parents decided we're going to a church at Simmontown down there 
east of Gap. Only time I was ever at that church, I think. And so I was sitting there beside my dad, and the preacher was speaking very powerfully, and I don't know who that man was, and I don't remember a word he said that night. But I do know that the Lord was wooing and calling, and at some point in that evening, um, I responded and said yes to the Lord, and he saved my soul. Thank God for that. And I yet remember, even though it's almost, do the math, almost 50 years ago, I yet remember how free I felt and clean and how wonderful that feeling was. Thank God for all of that. I made a big mistake in that, in that I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my dad. I didn't tell my mom. I'm sorry, mom. I didn't tell my brothers. I didn't tell anyone. And that was, uh, I think, surely a hindrance to me. I don't know when I actually did confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. Somewhere along the line, I'm sure I did, as Romans 10, 9 says. And as I think of that, I also think of Sam, I, Sam and Catherine, who are members at, at Trogger. Sam is Rosie's dad, Rosie Fisher from Living Hope. And I can't think what Sam I's last name is. Who knows? Is it Stolzfus or Fisher or something? Fisher? All right, thank you. He told me a few months ago how that he didn't come to the Lord until he was an adult, after he was married, probably in his 30s. And one night, a group of friends helped him to come to the Lord. And he went home and told Catherine right away. It was late at night by that time. And she wasn't that awfully impressed. But the next day, there was an event um, where lots of their friends got together. And he just decided that he's not going to say anything to anybody. Uh, I forget what his reasons were. Um, but he wasn't going to mention anything about his experience, even though it was so wonderful and precious to him and new and fresh. During the course of the day, one of his good friends said, Sam, what has changed about you? You are different. And he had just been a Christian for maybe 12 or 14 hours. And so Sam did confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus, and he told his friend the whole story. And as I think of all this and God's election and his calling to himself, I'm just thinking that maybe you have been born again and are a Christian and haven't confessed much with your mouth the Lord Jesus lately. Or maybe you never have. And maybe at the end of the sermon when time is given for response, maybe God would want you just to stand and Give a word for him. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know that. I'm just, but maybe that would be an opportunity that we could give today. If you would do that, there would be no safer place than right here. Now, I know there's a lot of people, but they are kind people, 
And it would be a tremendous encouragement to you. If the Lord is just leading you and nudging you in that way, may God give you the grace and the strength to do that, maybe even today. Now, there's lots of other ways to confess Jesus than giving a public testimony in church. Uh, may God give us strength and grace to do that, maybe this week. So, we're, the election of God, verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Thank God that he has elected us and called us. Certainly, that should bring us to worship. And thanking our high and holy God for his wonderful salvation just once again. Not I, but Christ. It's not of anything that we have done, or not by our works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. Not I, but Christ. The election of God. Let's go on and think about a phrase in, back in verse 1, having looked at ver verse 4 just a little bit, back to verse 1 and notice that grace and peace from God our Father. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. And just pick that out and th think and talk about that for a few minutes. What is grace? Well, it's often been said that it's unmerited favor, hasn't it? And when I talk about God's grace, I especially feel inadequate. And anything that I say here about God's wonderful grace is only going to be part of the story, part of the wonderful story. But I like the acrostic G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. It's often been said, and I think it's right, and I just remind you of that again, that great, uh, that, well, what is justice? Justice is getting something that you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. So, you've done something wrong, and the wheels of justice give you what you deserve. That's justice. What is mercy? Well, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And then grace, on the other hand, is unmerited favor. It's receiving that which we don't deserve. And the, when God elects us and calls us to himself and we respond, as these Thessalonians did, and as you probably have done, when God does that, it's, it's a work of pure grace. Because it's, we don't deserve to be elected by a holy by the holy God. It's a pure work of grace. Unmerited. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Not at all. It's grace. In spite of that. In spite of what we have done and what we are. It's receiving that which we don't deserve. How we thank God for his wonderful, amazing grace. I think grace goes further and grace, there's also great God's grace to respond to him continually. To, grace to repent. Grace to confess. Glenn would have talked about that in the devotional today. It's grace to, God gives strength and grace to accept closed doors and to walk through open doors. Grace. Thank God for his grace. J. Hudson Taylor said on this subject, 
and I quote Mr. Taylor, it does not matter where he places me or how. That is rather for him to consider than for me. For the easiest positions, he must give grace, and in the most difficult, his grace is sufficient. So, if God places me in great perplexity, must he not give me much guidance? In positions of great difficulty, much grace. In circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength. As to work, work was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so difficult, but the weight and strain are all gone. His resources are mine, for he is mine. Grace. Thank God for his grace. And then we could also talk about peace, but Joseph, if it's all right, we won't talk about peace today. <laughs> you remember last Sunday where Joseph very well uh, spoke about peace uh, all sermon long. Thank you for that. And we will just keep moving there and move on to the third section, which I see in verse 2, that of giving thanks to God. Paul gave thanks to God for the contribution of those Thessalonian saints, even very young in the Lord saints. We give, God, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Thanks to God. So, the first two points had to do with God's provision for us, God's election and God's grace. Now, we're thinking about our response, our proper response to all that God does for us, all that God gives us, all that God is. Thanks to God. First point was the election of God and then the peace of God, um, the grace and peace of God. Now we would like to talk about giving thanks to God. As I thought about that and prepared for the sermon, I pulled out um, a file folder that I have uh, about thankfulness, thanksgiving and thankfulness. And I didn't realize that I had accumulated as much material on this subject over the years. But it was interesting to go back and just notice things that I had put into my file on this subject. And I, I, I was blessed all over again. I had forgotten quite a, a lot of these things or items. But I am thankful for God's goodness. And would, So I'm just going through this file a little bit, if you don't mind, and share with you what I noticed in studying. One person said that if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of this world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, and a little spare change in a dish somewhere, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the million who will not survive this week. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, or death, you are more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. 
And lastly, if you can read this, you are more blessed than over two billion people in the world that cannot read at all. Um, someone else has said that a regenerated heart has a little stream of life, praise, thanksgiving, and joy. A regenerated heart has a little stream of life, praise, thanksgiving, and joy. Sometimes it overflows the banks until the channel cannot possibly hold it all. But too often that little stream dries up to a mere trickle. The scorching sun of trial evaporates some of it. The sandy banks of care absorb more. The channel becomes partly clogged with worry about the future. Then not much is needed to stop it altogether. It is the outflow of praise from the spirit-filled life, thanksgiving is. And if you're like me, you can identify with that little stream that gets clogged up by the cares of this life, uh, trials of life, uh, worrying about the future. Contentment is very rare. Neither the rich nor the poor are content. And so thanksgiving is rare as well. A contented person recognize, recognizes that God knows best. Whether God has chosen to give him much or little, it is the right amount from a wise and loving father. Such a contentment must be learned, and I add that it can be learned by God's grace. Thinking of God's many blessings will lead to thanksgiving. Thinking of God's many blessings will lead to thanksgiving. So times of meditation are needed, short ones at mealtimes, longer ones on rising and retiring, and regular ones in the Lord's house. If you think, this man says, if you think, you'll thank. And then there's the story that you might remember about Matthew Henry back in the 1700s or the 1800s perhaps. One day he was robbed and somebody got his wallet and he said this. In response to that, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. And then a much more modern person, uh, Mark DeHaan, has written this. And we're thinking about thankfulness. And you'll probably be thankful when this is finished. But uh, follow Mr. DeHaan just a little bit here. Can a thankful person be dissatisfied and angry and bitter? What if I'm appreciative of being blessed in many areas while feeling short-changed short and denied in others? What if I gratefully acknowledge that the Lord has forgiven my willful, selfish acts of disobedience, snatched me from the devouring flames and torments of hell, adopted me into his family, given me security and standing in Christ, assured me of his eternal presence, promised me everlasting joy, named me in his eternal will, provided me with the ability to grow into the character of Christ, and told me over and over of his love for me while feeling that he is denying me what I'm holding out for. 
What am I holding out for? If the blessings of eternity have left me feeling so shortchanged, so unenthusiastic, so deprived of circumstance and overflowing happiness, what would really make me happy? Would I really be blessed if I got a paycheck that would be so adequate I'd forget to pray? A, a relationship so fulfilling I'd forget my dependence on the Lord. A house so comfortable I'd forget to live moment by moment in the spirit. Would I really be blessed if I got the better health that would end the continual prodding of my spirit for proof for faith? Forgive me, Lord, for holding out. Thank you for holding back only in the small things and only because you love us. Uh, more could be said on that subject. Um, maybe we'll just end that section. With this poem that our family got to know and probably memorized a number of years ago, and it's been kind of, it crops up every once in a while. And I think Julie and Jenny could say it by heart. But if, if it's all right, I'll just not put them on the spot and I'll read it. A smile for you. Smiling is infectious. You catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. I passed around the corner and someone saw my grin. When I smiled, when he smiled, I realized I'd passed it on to him. I thought about that smile, then I realized it's worth. A single smile just like mine can travel around the earth. So if you feel a smile begin, don't leave it undetected. Let's start an epidemic quick and get the world infected. Thankfulness, gratitude, gratefulness. More could be said on that. Maybe we'll keep moving. Let's think about verse 3, and I just noticed those phrases there, the work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. What about those three? We could talk about that just a little bit, and as I talk about it, I am so aware that I'm just scratching the surface a little bit. The work of faith. What is a work of faith? Those young Thessalonian Christians were involved in a work of faith. And J. Vernon McGee has said that faith is the response of the soul of man to the word of God. Faith is the response of the soul of man to the word of God. It's a work of faith. Work of faith. It's that of trusting God and believing God even when all the evidence seems to be against God's word. You, when you walked in here this morning, uh, you evidenced faith in your own life, right? You came and sat down, and you didn't worry about uh, the condition of the building. So you didn't, really didn't think about that it would fall, could fall in on you about this time of the morning. You have faith in the architect, that the architect who drew up the plans of this building 150 years ago. He's long gone, but you have faith in him, don't you? And the general contractor, if they had those kind of things back then, you had faith in the workmen and in the materials. You even had faith that when you walked in that the 
that Sylvan, the janitor, would have things comfortable and nice and warm and faith. It's a work of faith. In, our, in a spiritual way, that is true as well. Uh, the spiritual house of God. The church, the spiritual house of God. Jesus is the architect, and we trust the architect. Just like you trust the long-gone architect of this building. You trust the contractor of God's spiritual house. It's Jesus. You trust the workman, and you trust the material, and, you, and more. Thank God for Jesus, who is everything in everyone, not I, but Christ. As we think about that and the faith that we place on the Lord Jesus and the fact that he is so completely faithful, nothing but faithful, should cause us to worship and thank the Lord all over again for his wonderful, wonderful provisions for us on every hand. Did you know that Peter was a man of faith? Uh, even before Pentecost, even back in his um, up and down days when he would talk a lot and, and yeah, wishy-washy as he was, back in Luke 5.5, 5, you remember the story, I think, how that uh, they had been fishing all night, a couple of the disciples, and didn't catch anything. And Jesus told them, that, uh, go back out and see what you can do, putting it into my own words. And Peter said, and this is the amplified version, in response to, what, to that ridiculous command that Jesus had just given, Peter said, and in the Amplified. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night exhaustingly and caught nothing in our nets. But on the ground of your word, I will lower the nets again. That, I believe, is the wonderful example of the work of faith. If you say it, Lord, since you have said it, since you're asking that of me, I am willing to do it. I think that we 21st century Christians that have been elected by God and have experienced his grace, God's grace, and his peace should be 21st century Peter's. Well, then there's the labor of love. Did you notice it's a work of faith and it's a labor of love. Now, work can sometimes be... can have pleasant or stimulating uh, connotations and fulfilling. Work is work, but yeah. But labor implies even more than that. It kind of labor of love. It implies cost and exertion and fatigue and exhaustion. All of those are implied in the word labor. But it's a labor of love. And certainly Jesus has again taught us everything that we really know about love on the cross, has he not? Ultimately, if Christ can love us so much that he would die the death of the cross on Calvary, think about that just once again and all that that entailed and all that that cost, 
and all the exertion and fatigue and exhaustion that that cost Christ Jesus, not to mention being separated from his father. And he did that because of his love for us. Certainly that is a labor of love. As I think of that once again, on all that Jesus did in his love for you and his love for me, it makes it just a little bit easier to love the people that God has put around me. J. Vernon McGee, quoting him again, or t again, uh, as he talked about the labor of love in his commentary, he, interestingly, <coughs> emphasized obedience, and he connected very much love for God with obedience for God. He, he emphasizes that quite a bit in his comments on labor of love. If I really love God... Mr. McGee uh, was so bold to say, then I will obey God. Even if it's something like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Labor of love. So we've talked about work of faith and labor of love. Just a little bit about the patience of hope. Did you think about it that the work of faith is kind of past tense? Um, it especially deals, I think, with the point when we came to the knowledge of the Lord and were born again. Now, it has ongoing connotations, of course, but especially past tense. And labor of love especially has to do with our present, and then patience of hope has to do with the future. Heaven equals hope, or hope equals heaven. I think whenever the New Testament talks about hope, uh, the, the ultimate insinuation is heaven. Hope equals heaven. Patience of hope. It takes a lot of patience till we get there. Uh, not talking about resignation or passiveness, but passiveness. But I think it's the NIV that calls it patience of hope mentions heroic endurance and manly constancy. Keeping on, keeping on. Patience of hope. I think of, of verse, verses like 1 Peter 1.13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end. To the end, you know, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Patience of hope. We're talking especially heaven. And I think that that's a good place just to end this sermon. Thinking about patience of hope, our future Heaven is our home. All of this that we get, everything that God has provided for us, as mentioned here in these four verses, and as the Bible articulates in so many other ways, all of that, the, the, all those blessings in heavenly places that we are experiencing now, all that and heaven too. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with grateful hearts and thank you for uh, that you have elected us. And thank you even beyond that, that you have elected every person 
that has ever lived and will live. And you would, it's your will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you have made a way that that is possible. And I just pray today, right now, that if there is anybody here that hasn't yet made his calling and election sure, that today would be the day that he does that. And if there are people here struggling and... I just pray that your grace could be upon them and that they could come to the Lord, not tomorrow, but today, Heavenly Father. And we just thank you for, for grace, not only to become Christians, to come to the Lord originally, but for grace that sees us through life with the struggles and trials of each day. Thank you for the joy of the Christian life. Thank you that you've provided everything that we need in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen.